Bible reading now, uh, and I trust that what we've just sung will be the prayer of our own hearts as we hear God's Word read, and then Duncan will come and, and bring the message to us. Romans 6, verses 11 to 23. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey the, its evils to desires. Do not, any, do not offer any part of your wickedness to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slave to, slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Friends, let's join together uh, again. We've sort of sung a prayer as we've uh, begun today and heard God's word. I'm going to pray for us as well, though, uh, as we begin to think about how it might impact on us and change our lives. So let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. We thank you that in it we see Jesus and all you have done for us in him. Thank you for him. Uh, thank you for the gift of eternal life that you freely give to all those who put their faith in Christ. Thank you for the gift of being united to him in his death and resurrection. Uh, our Father, please today, by your spirit, would you take these words that were written for us so long ago, but may you please make them come alive in our hearts. Uh, Father, may you, uh, may we today, as we encounter the incredible reality of the gospel once again, Lord, may that live deeply within us and transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. I'm wondering if anyone's recognising this as I'm reading it out. Maybe not. Not enough folk music fans among us. But you're going to have to serve somebody. 
Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Also saying, the great folk legend Bob Dylan in the late 70s after his conversion to Christianity. Uh, It's a great song, trust me. Um, uh, But it's a great song and it really sums up a lot of what Romans 6 is talking about, the the second part of Romans chapter 6. Did you see it as we read through, this language of service, this language of service kind of dominates this second part of this chapter, this idea that we are we are of slavery, this language of slavery. And it can be a bit confronting, can't it, for us to hear? Um, it can be confronting. It sort of cuts against so many of the cherished assumptions of our world, of our culture. Uh, we love the idea of our individual freedom, don't we? That, that we are individually free. We are self-made people. We decide our own fates. We can be whatever we want, so long as or as long as we follow the gospel of our age, which is to follow your dreams and believe in yourself, right? Uh, But Romans 6 paints a strikingly different picture, and it can be confronting. But friends, I think if we can hear this message, hear the message of Romans 6, uh, uh, the message of this chapter, it's actually one of the most central parts of the Bible for our everyday living as a Christian person. The teaching of Paul here is nothing short of revolutionary. Um, It is sweet and life-giving, and it has the potential to bring lasting change to our lives. Uh, We're going to start off where we ended last week. If you were here last week with us, we ended at verse 11. And I said last week, verse 11 is kind of like a hinge for this whole chapter. Uh, It's actually kind of like a hinge for the whole book, I think. Uh, it gathers up everything Paul said already, and it, it sets the framework for everything or what he's going to come and say afterwards. Uh, this key idea that through faith in Jesus, what Paul's been talking about over the, the first four chapters uh, of the book, this key idea that through faith in Jesus, people are united to him, uh, are bound to him in a real and organic way, Last week we said it was kind of like a shoot being grafted into a living tree, this real organic union in, in Christ. There's lots of ways that we can talk about our relationship with Jesus, right? There's lots of ways that the Bible talks about it. It talks about following Jesus. Um, it talks about copying him. Uh, it, it can, in places, talk about Jesus in me, Jesus beside me. But friends, by far and away... The most common way the New Testament describes our relationship with Jesus is as being in Him, in Him, united to Him. It's so critical for Paul in understanding what it means to live as a Christian, this idea of being united to Christ, being in Him. Uh, We need to think carefully about it. 
As I said last week, we used this image of being grafted onto the, uh, out of the old Adam tree that's already cut off from its life source into the new living Jesus tree, uh, this new and living way under Jesus. Another way you might think about it is this, uh, an example of a plane, right? Just imagine you're going on a holiday, you've had enough of cold winter weather and you want to head up to Fiji uh, or perhaps somewhere else, I don't know, you're going to Melbourne or something just as cold. Uh, the point is, you're going on a plane, okay? Now, what relationship do you need to have to the plane? What relationship do you need to have to the plane? Uh, do you need to be inspired by it and think, one day I could do that too, you know, if I flap my wings hard enough? Do you need to follow it? You kind of watch it take off and you run after it with your little legs as fast as you can take, they can take you? No, of course not. I mean, there's, that's silly, right? What relationship do you need to have to the plane? You have to be in it. <laughs> You've got to be in the plane. And by being in the plane, this is the whole point of this picture, hopefully it works for you, by being in the plane, what happens to the plane happens to you. It gets to Melbourne, you get to Melbourne. It gets to Fiji, even better, or wherever you're going, you get there. And it's like that with being in Christ, by being in Him. What's true of Him is true of us. What happens to him happens to us. What's his is ours, and it makes all the difference. You see, imagine one person on this plane. He's a, a seasoned frequent flyer, right? Does the trip all the time, uh, flies every week. He's totally, totally relaxed. He has absolute trust in the plane itself and the system. Uh, uh, but, but imagine sitting next to him, right? There's someone who is a first-time flyer, totally nervous, totally anxious, um, scared, uh, who has a kind of deeper trust, a deeper faith, if you want to use that kind of language. Well, it's the first guy, right? Uh, but who gets to the destination? They both do. They both do. They both get lunch, unless they're travelling tiger, of course. Uh, they both get to take, from takeoff to landing, they both get there, not because of how confident they are, but because they're in the plane. Their feelings didn't change that, whether they were totally relaxed or really anxious. And Paul is saying here, your feelings are irrelevant, actually, at this point. At this point. Have you heard the gospel and believed it? Do you trust in Jesus' death for you? Then Paul is saying, you are in him. And what happens to him happens to you. You're in the Jesus plane, and what's true of him is true of you. He died to sin once and for all, we're told. And he lives to God, and if you're in him, so do you. It doesn't matter how you feel about it, if you're in Christ, it's true. You are dead to sin and alive to God. And we saw this last week, Paul's first great instruction in this letter is for God's people who are reading this. He says, if all of that's true, his first great instruction is, therefore, so, uh, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's the first great instruction that he gives to every day, again and again, 
Believe what God has declared to be true. Believe that it really is true to count yourself, to remember every day that you are in Christ, and because of that you are dead to sin, you are alive to God. And friends, it's so important, this, uh, what Paul's saying in verse 11 here, and we can't move on to the rest of the chapter unless we've got it, unless we've heard it and received it. It sets the tone and the framework for all the instructions that Paul's going to go on and say, all that Paul urges the Christians to do in Rome. This kind of sets the framework. And you can see that, you can see that that's the case, that this verse 11 kind of sets the tone, it sets the framework. You can see it by the next word in verse 12. If you've got your Bibles open, that'll really help. The next little word in verse 12, therefore. That's always one of those important words whenever you come across it. Really helpful to think what's, you know, you might have, I think I've said this before, what's the therefore, therefore. Uh, Really helpful to just be kind of on the lookout for those really important words. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ and therefore therefore uh, I'm going slow at this point, one word at a time, we will speed up, don't worry. Uh, Therefore, this word therefore shows us that what Paul's going to go on and say in the rest of this chapter, is a logical outworking of what is already said. A logical kind of outworking. If you get what is said already, then the rest of this will make sense. Um, you can see that there's, there's, two, there's two logics going on here. And if you've got your hand out, you'll see, you'll see that. There's two logics going on here. We've already seen one of them. Uh, the logic of license, of basically of of doing what you want without any reference to anyone else, uh, this logic of license. Uh, we saw that in verse 1. Uh, that's, the, that's the whole thing that started off this whole, thing, uh, this whole argument of Paul's, verse 1. If you want to flick your eye up to verse 1, uh, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This whole idea of uh, God has saved us by grace, so it doesn't matter what you do, this logic of license. He gets to it again, if you notice, down in verse 15. What shall we say? Because uh, shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. Well, that's what Paul is arguing against here. Uh, and friends, surely you have thought that at some point. I, I, surely all of us at some point have thought that, haven't we? It doesn't really matter. Uh, God will forgive you. That's His job, right? That's what Jesus came to do—to forgive sins. So. Uh, But friends, if we find ourselves thinking that way, in that moment, we have forgotten the whole logic of the gospel. We have bought into a false logic. If we've really seen what has happened to us through Jesus, if if we have really counted ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, that thought wouldn't enter into our minds. You see, the gospel has a much deeper and more wonderful and heart-changing logic to it. It's not the logic of license, this logic of the gospel. Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. You see what Paul's saying here? Those verses, so strong, right? So confronting. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer yourselves, any part of yourself, to sin. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You see what Paul's saying here? If you've got verse 11 and everything that's come before it, if you've seen that in Christ, through faith, you are been brought by God's grace out of Adam and into him, if you've seen that you are dead to sin and you have a new life towards God, if you've seen that, then the rest is what he says here. You'll hear that and you'll think, of course, of course, that just makes sense. Of course that's what you do. What Paul's talking about here is what I'll call a kind of grace renewal in the Christian life. A grace, friends, how can we experience real change in, in the Christian life, real growth in godliness? And We can't say, just keep on sinning, okay? We know that now. We can't go the logic of license. God's gracious, therefore, it doesn't matter what you do. No, Paul's sort of written that out off. We can't just say, keep on sinning. But the other option, and we mentioned this last week, the other option we often fall into that is not what Paul's talking about here also, is we can't just say, well, you can't go on sinning, so here's a list of rules for you to follow, right? If you do tick this off, then you'll be right. Uh, Paul's already said that that kind of thinking, if you were here a few weeks ago, Paul's already said that that kind of thinking, it actually, what it does is it makes sin more obvious and it gives you more opportunity to sin. Now, Paul's not interested in turning a blind eye to sin or the other extreme of just trying to give a list of rules to stop it. He's interested in real deep change in your heart, real deep heart, real inward grace-driven renewal. For Paul, far from being a reason to sin, the gospel of God's grace actually gives the deepest, most transforming logic for actual change and growth in holiness in the Christian life. The reality of grace, this reality of God's grace, is all through the second half of Romans 6. Sometimes we kind of focus on the, all the slavery talk, but if you've, if you've got your kind of grace goggles on, you'll see it all the way through that last half of the chapter. We've already seen it in verse 11, verse 11 that sets the sort of stage for all of this. It's all about remembering and recognising and counting as true what God has done for you in Christ. And Paul can't stop reminding of that as he goes on. You notice that in verse 13, uh, probably up on the screen there, uh, verse 13 says, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. 
You've already been brought from death to life, right? This is the logic of grace. Therefore, offer yourself to God. Verse 14, uh, the next verse, Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, you're under grace. And you'll see it all the way through the rest of the passage as we go on. What God has done for us and to us, apart from us in Christ, what God has done for us and to us, not what we have done, but what he has done is always front and centre in Paul's mind when he is thinking about what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to grow as a Christian. We never move past God's grace. We don't move past grace to something else. Grace uh, is the ongoing logic of the Christian life. It can be a bit surprising then, as you read on, it can be a bit surprising then that Paul, uh, from verse 15 onwards, he kind of switches into this language of slavery that I started with, right? You've got to serve somebody. It can be a bit surprising, uh, this idea of being a slave to two masters, two lords. Uh, just a, a quick note, I think it's on the handout there, you probably notice, he, he swaps names around for these different lords, these different masters, on the way through. I think that's so that we, he wants to give us a kind of rich picture, a full picture of each of these different lords. One of them is sin or law or wickedness. He kind of uses those words. And the other is God or grace or obedience or righteousness. There's just something to keep an eye out on the way through. There's really just two options here, different sort of ways of talking about it. But how does, how does that fit with this whole idea of grace, right? How, how, does, how can Paul go on to talk about being a slave uh, when he's, he's, got, he's been at pains to say basing our, uh, we base our lives not on what we do but on what God has done for us in the gospel? It's a bit of a, it is a bit of an issue and you can see that Paul is himself, he knows about this. He's aware of this kind of tension. If you're sitting there thinking, what's going on? Is it grace or is it slavery? Or... Paul himself is aware of this. If you flick down to verse 19, you put your eye down to verse 19, it's, kind of, it's almost like Paul is a bit apologetic about using this image of slavery. He knows uh, he, he knows that it doesn't capture everything about what he's trying to say. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Uh, they reckon um, that the people Paul was writing to um, had a real and active ongoing knowledge of slavery, okay, in a different way than, than what we do. That the kind of slavery wasn't the kind of slavery that we think of when we think of 18th century slavery and people coming out of Africa and it, it wasn't the kind of same kind of slavery. They reckon about a third of people in Rome were slaves at, at any one time and you could kind of move in and out of slavery and many, uh, many kind of free, free people were once themselves slaves and they've sort of come out and now they're freed. Uh, all of that to say a lot of the church in Rome would have sort of got what Paul was saying here. And Paul's saying, I'm using this example from your everyday life um, because of your human limitations. It doesn't quite get everything that I want to say. It doesn't capture everything about your relationship with God. But it does say something important. 
And it does say something we need to hear. See, Paul knows that you do got to serve somebody. You do got to, you have to serve that. Paul knows that no human is ever free, if by free we mean what we often mean today, which is totally independent, right? Uh, totally, totally free of any other, I just make my own independent decisions. Paul knows that's a lie, that's not true. The confronting claim here is that everyone is a slave. Uh, everyone comes under the rule of another power. And there are only two options, actually. Did you read that uh, on the way through? There are only two options. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. Uh, there is a freedom, of course, that Paul has talked about, the wonderful news of being free from sin, freed from its prison. Last week we used that prison imagery to say how God brings us out of that prison, free from its prison. But what Paul's saying here is you don't replace being under sin with being under nothing or being under sin with being under yourself or to be freed out of sin's domain means that you're brought into the kingdom of God under Jesus as your king. It is to be made dead to sin but alive to God as our Lord and our King and this is where I want to head, friends. Paul has bent over backwards. He's bent over backwards to show that God is our good Lord. He is the Lord of grace. He is the Lord we were made to serve. In a profound way, we reach our true freedom. What Paul's going to go on to talk about is true freedom. Uh, we reach it precisely through serving him, precisely in his kingdom, under his lordship. Paul wants to highlight this at the last few verses of the chapter, the, the verse that we learnt down here with the kids, right? That's what Paul wants to highlight. Uh, uh, it's not as if we replace one bad master with another equally bad master. Oh, Sorry, my apologies. What I meant to say was Paul wants to highlight this whole idea of that God is the good Lord we were made to live under versus our sin and all that comes with it in the last section, those last few verses, okay? We don't just replace one bad master with another one. That's <laughs> basically what Paul's trying to say. He's not saying you come out of sin to another kind of begrudging lordship that's going to sort of suck the life out of you. Think they couldn't be more different, this Lord of sin and death and this Lord of grace and life. Look at their fruits, Paul says. Look at their fruits from verse 21. What benefit did you reap at, the time of the thing, uh, at, at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what he's saying there? There's these two fruits, uh, these two characteristics of these different masters, shame and death, 
on the one hand and holiness and eternal life on the other. Life in under sin, life in its kingdom, it produces bad fruits, friends. It promises a lot, but it can't deliver. It may taste sweet for a moment, but it will leave you ashamed, and in the end, it'll kill you. The whole image down in verse 23, really interesting little phrase. You pick the wages of sin. We said down there it's kind of like sin paying your wages. The image is kind of like sin's like a boss who pays the wages of his employees. Uh, and he's a very reliable boss. He always will give the people under him what they deserve. And his payment is death. Two fruits. But life in the kingdom of God. You see, friends, life in Jesus, united to him. See what Paul's saying? That leads to holiness now, a real changed life that's increasingly in line with God's purposes and God's plans and eternal life to come. You see, and, and, and this other master, did you notice that as you went through, this other master, apart, different from sin, sin gives you what you deserve, right? He get, pays his wages well. <laughs> this other master doesn't give you what, he de- what you deserve. He gives you a gift. He gives you what you don't deserve. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of that to say, friends, can you see how this is different from a kind of fear-driven motivation for your Christian life? Do this or you get it, right? This isn't kind of fear-driven Christian living. It's just a description of reality. Sin really isn't good for you. One of the great lies we can buy into is that living God's way, living God's way will make you miss out on good things. Right? You've got God's way. I know I've got to do it. I know, but it, it's going to make me miss out on good, good things, right? But I better do it because I know it's kind of right and if I don't, I'll get, you know, zapped. You're a goner. It's as if God's playing a big sort of cosmic game and he's got his finger over the zap button, right? Ready to strike you at any moment. Friends, please hear this. God isn't interested in making you miss out on good things. He wants you to enjoy the full riches of the life he has given you. There's a great... Uh, the way this was summarised by C.S. Lewis, I think this is going to come up on the screen, uh, in a really a very famous sermon that C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, the famous Christian apologist of last century, gave. Uh, he kind of summarised this, this whole uh, thing. He said, um, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
All sin can give you is mud pies in a slum. God wants to give you the holiday at the sea. Life under his rule is what you were made for. A holy life, right? A holy, if you think of a holy person, right, who do you think of? Maybe someone who's a little bit stuffy and doesn't really enjoy life. That's not the Bible's idea of holiness. A life of pursuing holiness, of a life of obedience to God, not anxiously trying to earn his favour, but because you already have it in Christ. That kind of life is beautiful and exciting and it is good. It is good for you. I'll go even further. Anything less than that is to miss out. If you don't have that, you're missing out. Anything less than that is to be far too easily pleased with the mud pies in the slum. And friends, once we've seen all of this, all of this, once we've been seen that being united to Christ means that we are now dead to sin and alive to God in him, once we've counted that as true, when we do that, it opens up this new gospel logic for our lives under our new Lord who is good, who gives us good eternal fruit, who leads us in good ways here and now, then we start to see how the gospel change, how real gospel change happens in your life. Real inward gospel change happens. We need to change. We can't go on in sin. We can't go the other extreme from jumping from license to legalism, right? what we looked at. We can't do that. We can't jump from, don't worry about it, to here's 50 rules that you need to follow every day. That's just as bad an error. See, the alternative to this license, this idea, it's not works. Uh, there should be something coming up on the screen that might help this diagram. You see, works says, this, works says I obey, therefore I'm accepted, right? I obey, and, and because I do the right thing, therefore I'm accepted. It's motivated by fear and insecurity. And you obey in God in order for you to get good things, you, you, for you to get things from him. No, friends, that's not the gospel. That's not what's on view in Romans 6. In Romans 6, this is real gospel transformation. I'm accepted. I am in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. Of course I'll obey him. It's a motivation based on grateful joy and thankfulness. And we don't obey God in order to get stuff for ourselves. We obey God in order to get God, to delight in him and to resemble him. And that's why, you might have noticed that in verse 17 of the passage, that's why you can come to obey this pattern of teaching from the heart. From the heart. Friends, I'm aware that there's, again... Lots in this passage that we haven't had time to touch on in detail. But with all of that in our minds, what I'm going to do is finish off by reading out verses 11 to 14 again. And as I do that, I just invite you to take the opportunity to consider your life. 
your life and particularly to think about your life. Maybe it's where you're following verse 1 and you're thinking, let's just sin because God's grace will cover it. Um, Consider your life. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's not, though. Uh, What will it look like for you this is a good question to finish up with, I think. What will it look like for you to offer every part of your life to God as an instrument of righteousness, leading to holiness, not out of fear and insecurity, but out of grateful joy and thankfulness, trusting that his way really is the holiday by the sea. And life, we talked last week, sin, you are no longer under sin, you're dead to that, but it still calls through the bars of its prison. Uh, But all it can give you is mud pies, friends. So I'm going to read that again, verse 11 to 14, and just take this opportunity to consider your life and perhaps use it as a prayer for yourself, uh, given the reality of the gospel, that that God might do this great work in you, uh, that you might receive this word joyfully and obey it. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Let's pray together. Father, we do long that you might by your spirit please Continue to transform each of each of us, Lord, wherever we're at. Uh, perhaps for us these things are, are, are just kind of foreign concepts. Perhaps for us um, we don't know what it means to be in Christ, to, tr- to trust him. Father, for those of us who are in that position, may even today, uh, may you by your spirit show Christ, show us Christ, that we might trust in him. Uh, but, Father, for those of us uh, who, who have placed our, our trust in Jesus, who are in him, Lord, help us every day to count ourselves as being who we truly are in him, dead to the dominion of sin and brought into your wonderful and life-giving kingdom under and in Jesus. And flowing out of that, Lord, in natural response to that. Uh, Father, we ask your help that we might not let sin reign in us, that we might not obey its evil desires, that we might not offer any part of ourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather that we might offer ourselves to you. For you have brought us from death to life. Lord, may we offer every part of ourselves to you as an instrument of righteousness, 
And we, we pray that, Lord, knowing that we are not under the law, we are under your grace. We thank you for these wonderful things, Father. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might continue to change us, continue to reveal more of Christ to us, and continue to shape us into the people that you would have us to be. For the praise of your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.